0: Welcome to Season 10 of the Parenting Aces Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Stone. And before we go any further, I want to just remind you that we are now part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, which, yay us, we love being part of that network. I also want to remind you that the video version of all of our podcasts are available now on ParentingAces.com and on the Parenting Aces YouTube channel. So if you want to put a face with the voice that you're hearing in your ear, go check out those videos and uh, leave us some comments. We want to know how you like that.
1: With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com.
0: Also a reminder, if you haven't already become a premium member of ParentingAces.com, what are you waiting for? We want you to join us. The link is in the show notes, so be sure and check that out. Now, Getting to this week's episode, my guest this week is Tina Samara, and Tina has such a a vast... Um, experience in the world of tennis. Not only did she play junior and college tennis, she also played on the professional circuit. She also played professional golf, which I just found out. And on top of that, she has coached at all levels and especially at the college level, which we're going to talk about and really focus on that aspect of Tina's experience and her work, because she's now uh, started a company called Transition Coach for athletes, and she is working with athletes and families as they go through the recruiting process, but also continuing to work with them once they're on campus and actually enrolled and playing tennis, hopefully, and and doing the school thing, the college thing. And Tina's got some great advice, and we're going to talk a little bit about this whole notion of What happens when things aren't going as expected in college? What recourse do you have? What steps should you go through? And that's going to be the gist of our conversation today. So sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with Tina Samara. I'm going to bring her in now. And I'm going to unmute her so you can hear her. (laughs) Tina, welcome to the pod. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, absolutely. And you're based in Colorado these days. Um, I hope y'all aren't having this crazy extreme winter weather like the rest of the country.
1: No, we're actually, my parents are in New York. They're getting all that crazy weather. And, um, you know, we might get a little snow today, but maybe an inch if that. But yesterday it was 65 degrees. That's Denver for you. It's very up and down. You know, my Norwegian moms had it in New York and, you know, it's pretty bad (laughs) if a Norwegian mom's had it. So I'm, I'm pretty happy to be here.
0: Well, happy to have you. So before we get into the crux of this week's conversation, I really wanted to give you a chance to talk about what your life in junior and college tennis looked like. Ooh. Depends who you ask. (laughs) No,
1: Um, I'm asking
0: you. I'm asking you.
1: (laughs) So, um, I have an older brother, four years older. So I kind of just followed him around and did what he did. And, and, um, I think tennis was probably one of the last sports I I picked up because the area where I grew up when I, till 10 years old, tennis really wasn't a, a popular sport. Um, and, uh, When we moved to a different place, tennis was uh, a little bit more um, popular and um, I had exposure to it. So that's sort of how at about 10, 11 years old, I took my first lesson. And I think I picked it up pretty quickly because of all the other sports. So um, like any other kid, I think you enjoy a sport when you enjoy success quickly. and, And I was lucky to have that. Um, so, um, you know, my parents, my, like I mentioned, my mom's from Norway. And my dad's from Sri Lanka. So we're not talking about two countries that know a whole lot about tennis in general. I shouldn't say about Norway. We've got Casper Ruud doing very well right now. But, you know, certainly not known for, for tennis above the other winter sports in Norway and Sri Lanka. Fair enough. We all know that they're not a tennis powerhouse at the moment. So, you know, my parents just kind of let me explore really and um, didn't really push. I mean, of course, I think they're both competitive people. So they pushed me in a way I thought was pretty healthy for the most part in terms of, you know, put, giving your best effort and that kind of thing. But I was innately competitive too. So it was, wasn't was often that I wasn't trying to to win or or whatever, but certainly made some mistakes along the way. Um, and then, you know, I was fortunate to do well enough where, um, I, I was getting some, um, college coaches reaching out and, you know, again, a whole new process for collegiate sports. My parents knew nothing about my brother didn't play college sports. So, um, they again, kind of let me run with it. And I pretty much feel like I was like, Hey, I'm going away this weekend to visit Tennessee. See you in forty-eight hours, <laughs> and uh, was very fortunate enough fortunate to land at University of Georgia, which certainly um, at the time was probably the best program that had offered me an opportunity. And go dogs! Go dogs. Uh, you know, being a New Yorker moving to Georgia was a lot of my friends in high school, a small public high school were like, well, you're moving to Georgia. You know, they were all staying Northeast or California. And, but uh, certainly can't, can't look back and say, I wasn't really happy with the experience. Uh, You know, there are ups and downs. Like most people I think would say, but um, I I gained some great friends that I still have to this day. And um, we had a lot of success on the court and, um, You know, I think I probably lived what people talk about, that amazing college experience, which encompassed everything, including some tears and rough times and and things. But um, certainly what what I tell parents is I I learned a lot of life lessons in those years and, and, you know, good, the bad, the ugly. And, um, you know, when I got into college coaching, which was quite a bit later in my early 30s, um, I was hoping to really, you know, change some of the things I didn't like that I saw while I was in school and, and to improve on or continue the things in coaching that I thought were really great. And certainly wasn't perfect. Look back and wish I made some different decisions, but I don't think that's uncommon. Um, and you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, I, I probably, I think we meant talked about this. I probably talked to 50% of my players still. I left college coaching in 2016 was in it for 11 years. Um, You know, that 50%, you know, and and not all the other 50 isn't because of anything bad. Some people just don't keep in touch as much as others. And and, um, that's great. But I see what they're doing sometimes through Facebook or having babies and getting married. So it's pretty cool.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So let's kind of dive into this whole notion. You said you went through and had like the quintessential college tennis experience as a player, which included some things that weren't so great, um, included tears, included upset. We know that any experience that we have in life is going to have the good and the bad, right? It's just part of being human. But there are steps that people can take to try and minimize the bad stuff and maximize the good stuff. When you were in college, and and you know, I don't know if you can kind of transport yourself back there, but can you think of a a negative experience that happened to you and how you went about trying to resolve it or fix it or minimize it. Um, And the parts of that process that worked for you and the parts of that process that didn't work for you. And this is a really long question that then led you when you went into coaching to have a little more understanding of how things needed to work.
1: Yeah, it's really tough because I, I think it's changed a lot in 25 years. You know, 25 years ago, coaches, their word was it. Like there wasn't a whole lot of dialogue usually about why, you know, I was playing three and they moved me to four and I hadn't lost the match and there was no, like, explanation. And when I think I remember very well what happened when, when we asked about it. Actually, my Delos partner asked about it. She had more guts at the time than me, I think. And, you know, it was not, not – a situation that I remember fondly, you know? Um, so we kind of were wired to just, it is what it is, you know? And I think of course, for a lot of reasons, today's generation is a lot different. They, they do ask a lot more questions. They do expect to be, have things more explained, you know, more, um, which sometimes as a coach can be frustrating because it's like, there's not always a perfect explanation. And I think that's why when having coached for 11 years now doing what I'm doing, um, I can potentially help kids understand what the coach is thinking. It's not necessarily they don't like you or they think you're no good or that you're not trying. There could be, they know the other teams lineup and they know that the game style you have is just not really conducive against the player that plays like that. It could be something that simple. Um, Hopefully there's coaches out there that are still, you know, making decisions like that. Um, But, you know, I think the the thing I'd look back at a lot is of two of my really good friends that played there um, at Georgia, um, you know, Georgia was four in the country when we all went, we were all freshmen, four freshmen and um, maybe picking the school for the wrong reasons, picking it because it was the best school that offered a scholarship and not necessarily because it was the right fit or going to be the place that's you're going to thrive on and off the court. I mean, one of my team, is extremely intelligent, uh, could have gone IV and you know, all that kind of thing, ended up leaving the program in junior year and stayed on campus and finished their degree. Um, you know, I, at the time, especially Georgia's uh, academics have improved quite a bit as well. Yes. You know, back then she probably could have gotten a degree from a, a little bit more prestigious school, and she went on and did law school in California. Um, another teammate transferred her senior year as well, just because she wasn't playing and didn't feel like she was getting the opportunity to play. And, and I don't want to get too much into that, but um, you know, she—I feel like she she went through all the right channels and really did. To, no one worked harder than this one, so it wasn't a lack of effort and maybe just lack of opportunity. Sometimes I do think coaches get stuck in their decisions, and, and potentially maybe they put someone at six that was winning, so why are you going to change it just mm-hmm. to give someone else an opportunity if the other person's winning? So there's a lot of different things that go in. Um, but, you know, those are two of my closest friends, so it was really tough because not only were they fighting for their different reasons, but they were also fighting each other for that sixth spot as well, so that created some... Yeah. Well, you know.
0: Yeah. And I think it's, it's interesting what you said about you picking a school because they were a top school in the country. And maybe, you know, looking back, maybe it wasn't the best fit for you academically, socially, whatever. But you wanted to be at a school that was winning. And I think that A lot of kids and families make that same type of decision. They look at the record of the school rather than really digging in and looking at, you know, is this really the right fit for me? And even though the school's winning or maybe because the school is winning so much, what does that mean for my opportunity to actually get to be in the lineup and play?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's really tough. Um, and, 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 you know, for me, it made sense at the time it was, it was the best school that offered me, but also had one of the best veterinary schools, which is something I was super interested in. Unfortunately, that didn't pan out the, the way it had planned. I wish it looking back. I'm like, Oh, what would I be doing? No, just kidding. I enjoy what I'm doing, but I do it animals, and, and you know, it, 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 it did check those boxes for me. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's really hard for people to step back a little bit. First of all, there's, as you know, there's thousands of schools and there's tons of great schools academically. I mean, West Virginia, where I coached at, had one of the best forensic programs in the country now, you, West Virginia Virginia's not the school you think of right away when, Hey, where do I want to go to school? But if you're interested in forensics, which I was dying to get a player that was, I didn't get anyone because I was, wanted to live vicariously through that. <laughs> so, you know, um, then that might be the best school. And then at the time, if you were a really good player, you probably play pretty high up in that lineup and play in the big 12. So that could potentially be a great place for you to go. Um, right. So I think a lot of it is, is, um, you know, different circumstances. Like mine, my parents didn't know anything. My brother went to St. Lawrence University, upstate New York with 2000 students and that, you know, they had nothing to compare to. I don't think we, they really had a lot of friends that this was something they talked about. My, my path was so different at that level of playing as an athlete that, you know, they didn't have people to discuss it with. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, again, I feel fortunate I lucked out, you know, for the most part where I ended up, but um, yeah, I think a lot of it's just being able to take a step back and, 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 and take off the stereotypes a little bit and really think about, you know, what you're, I always tell kids, what, what are your negotiables and non-negotiables? You know, yeah. even if the, I think that non-negotiable is ridiculous, like the temperature has to have an average of 70 degrees all year, like you're really minimizing your opportunities. I mean, you can go to University of Michigan or Northwestern where that's not the case, and I'm pretty sure it's going to tick a lot of boxes, right? So, yeah. um, but at the end of the day, if, if it's a non-negotiable, there's no point sending you somewhere where you're going to be miserable because of something that, that we just overlooked and mm-hmm. that works both ways. Right. Um, and so I think it's being really open-minded, you know, um, I, I think in a weird way, I compare it to my recruiting, which was the opposite, which I, if I look back, I should have done differently. Sorry. I don't know why I keep coughing. <laughs> Um Is I cast a pretty small net when I recruited, and felt like I wanted to spend a lot of time getting to know a few kids rather than having 50 kids. You know, in tennis, you're not usually recruiting for more than two to three spots on on a, on a big year. But um, in in my work, I really want to cast a huge net and let let us decide where we don't what what we want to cross off the list, as opposed to that being decided for us. If that makes sense. Um, Absolutely. L- I think what happens a lot of times is these kids end up talking to coaches and and players on the team and and they learn things they never thought of. Like, even if they don't end up going to that school, they're like, oh, that's a great question to ask the other school because they mentioned something about, you know, team building. And we go hiking for two days in Yosemite or whatever. Right. So um, it's not about that. That's going to change your path necessarily, but it's going to certainly give you more. Ammunition and and ideas to to find the right place, if that right. makes
0: sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's you know I always tell people you've got to interact with the existing team members, and you really need to reach out to past team members because yeah. those are the ones that are going to really give you the truth about yeah. the program, right? 100%. Um, And, you know, we know there is a coaching carousel that happens. I mean, coaches change jobs all the time. So to choose a program only because you want to work with a specific coach can be a big mistake. Because if that coach leaves and the school isn't the right school for you, the team isn't the right team for you, then you're stuck. And you're put in a position of either having to suck it up or having to transfer. Um, So... Speaking of sucking up, let's kind of that's my segue to get into the crux of this week's podcast, which is conflict resolution on campus. And what happens when a player, a student athlete, has a situation either with a coach, with another teammate, or um, I, I don't know, with another team? Um, what are the steps? toward conflict resolution. What, what are the proper channels to go through to maximize the opportunity to get a resolution that is acceptable and pleasing to the student athlete and to minimize the risk of making everybody angry at you and making the situation worse?
1: Yeah, that's, that's definitely a, a complicated one. You know, I've, I've been on every side of that both as a coach and a player, um, my feeling is I always think unless unless the conflict is with your coach and it's, it's, it's a really serious nature, but is, is you go to your coach and, and, and you, you, you offer the opportunity for the coach to have an open conversation about what's going on. Um, when I look back at the different jobs I had, I think the best place I worked for this issue was West Virginia. And that was when Oliver Luck was the athletic director. And Anyone that knows him knows he's had some pretty successful athletes in the family, including Andrew. And, and Oliver was quite the athlete himself and a Rhodes Scholar finalist. So he wasn't a schlump either. Um, but, you know, I think theres it, it's complicated because you, I found that some schools, the kids would – go past the coach and go right above the coach. And that creates a lot of conflict for the team and the coach, because then there's a lack of trust. And you're like, wait, I didn't even get an opportunity to work on this with you. We, this didn't need to escalate to that level unless you first give me the opportunity and then, and then I'm not willing to fix it or we can't. And then, you know, in my way of looking at it is I, I my perfect world is, it's to be collaborative. So I think with, at West Virginia with Oliver, the team knew that wasn't going to fly. So the first question he'd ask, did you talk to the coach?
0: Mm.
1: And if they hadn't, see you later, come back when you have, you know, and I think cause you know, these are young kids and they aren't always getting what they want. And so, often it's for the right reasons because they aren't working hard or they haven't done what they've been asked to do, whatever. There's a million different reasons. And, um, and then they're forced to face it as opposed to circumvent the issue. Um, at the same time, um, I have no problem and I don't think any coach should of sitting down with an athlete and the Oliver Luck or the, the athletic director that oversees your sport to, to, so that way you can't say things in front of someone that are completely not true and, and get away with it. Or you're going to be a lot more careful choosing your words than, than otherwise. Um, but cause I, I really find from the situations I've helped with that almost always 90% of the time it's communication or lack of um and you know i think in fairness you know you you do have a coach that's invested quite a bit of money in women's tennis mostly full rides at the division one level that you at least the common courtesy to, to give give the opportunity to to deal with it and if it's a team conflict then i mean i think it's a good idea to have a team meeting and and, and try to stay pretty out of it and let let them have conversation going and you're going to get some ugliness usually in the beginning and but they're often able to figure a lot of that out. And in a lot of ways to try to fix this before it happens is, you know, first few weeks of, of the year is to sit down and come up with team values and things, um, which I've had work really well and I've had it not work well. That all comes down to kids that say their values are one thing and don't actually follow through with them, which is really frustrating as a coach because we're like, we let you pick the values. And even if right. I didn't love them, it's. It, it's up to you all to decide what you want them to be. But then it's, if your values are like, okay, we're going to make sure we do all of our rehab properly. And and then you find out half your team's not rolling out or, you know, or they don't bring their, there. Like, that's the kind of thing that, that can, you know, I mean, there's so many little things that can add up, but I think you do need to try to nip them in the bud because
0: they can grow quickly. So let's let's take a couple real world examples of conflicts that come up on college tennis teams, men and women. Um, So, for example, let's say that we have a situation like you talked about before where a player feels like they should be playing higher in the lineup Um, there. In the practices, they're beating the girls playing higher or the boys playing higher than they are. Uh, But when it comes down to match day, the coach continues to either put them down at the bottom of the lineup or not put them in at all. What would, as, as a former coach yourself, what would be the preferable way for that player to address that issue?
1: Yeah, I I think the first step, again, is to go asking the coach. and, and, And what you, I think, need to be careful of is how you ask the coach or how you communicate it. Because if you come in very confrontational, that usually doesn't go over well for a lot of different reasons. So it's simple changing words to, hey, I feel like I deserve to play as opposed to, I would love an opportunity to play or I would love to earn the opportunity to play and, and make sure that you're saying, Hey, no one deserves anything. I understand eight, eight girls are on scholarship and only six plays. So doesn't everyone deserve to play because they're on scholarship, you know? Um, you know, and I had a situation like that many, many moons ago. Um, and you know, the, my mentality was I'm going to keep playing where you put me, I was lucky enough. I wasn't out of the lineup, but mm-hmm. I'm going to keep winning till you don't have a choice. And, you know, I was competitive enough that I wasn't going to go tank at four because my coach put me there and I should be playing three because I was just too competitive. Now, not everyone is the same, you know, and and at some point. I mean, I'll be the first to say, and all my Georgia teammates, I'm sure, will admit at some point. You know, you're like hoping the kid above you loses. You want to win the team match. That's that's the foundation. But after that, it's a free for all. Or like, if I want to play three and I'm winning at four, I'm kind of hoping you you tank a match, not tank, but get beat a little bit. Um, I think you're you're not telling the truth if you don't if you don't say it. At, 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 at <laughs> you know, tennis is an individual sport. At the end the it is. At the end of the day, yeah, that, oh, that's tough it. loss. <laughs> yeah, so, um, but I, I think, yeah, the first step is to talk to the coaches, and and you know maybe you have a better relationship often with the assistant coach, and we all know that that happens a lot, and because
0: they're not the bad the bad guy or girl. Um, and that, often the assistant is younger, uh, you know, on the team. The assistant is the younger member of the team, and maybe closer in age to the players. So yeah. there's a little bit of that peer to peer comfort.
1: Yeah, hundred yeah, percent. And, and I think that's fine. You know, as long as, as a head coach, I think you have to make sure you have an assistant that you trust because that can get ugly too, but that's one story. story. So I, I think, yeah, it's more about, okay, well, what do you need, what can I do to get an opportunity? Do I need to come extra? Do I need to lift more? Do I need to go get quicker? Like so that you have a, a tangible list of things so that you can come back in three weeks and say, I've checked every box. Um, so, you know, then then the conversation could change from, yeah, like, n- n- what else? Because now I feel like I've done everything you asked. And, and I, I think any decent coach would have to give that kind of player an opportunity. Again, the hard part we talked about a little bit earlier is if everyone's winning,
0: mm-hmm. it's
1: hard to change the lineup. Like, you right. know, it, it is competitive. It is about getting the win on, on the scorecard. And it's like, well... You know, and then there are other teams like UVA men's team that I'm like blown away by over the years that like they have guys in and out of the lineup all day, like, but they're all like tough because down. they have such depth. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I guess they don't seem to care. I would care. Like as a player, I would have been like, like whenever I'm playing, if I'm winning, like, why are you pulling me out? So it, it's, I don't know how they make it work. And, you know, guys team maybe a little bit different than women's, but, um, you know, they often carry more people than the women's side as well. But, yeah it's it's a tough one um and, and maybe that's something that I just thought off the top of my head that you talk about in the recruiting process mm. you know how how would you handle I, again looking back I wish I'd said that a few times because then you have it kind of documented you we talked about this could happen that you might not be playing and how are you gonna handle that are you going to work hard or are you gonna you know are you gonna mm-hmm. you know create
0: divisiveness and and so know. one thing I want to point out is the word parents hasn't come up once in this conversation about conflict resolution. And this is often a really difficult thing for parents to deal with, right? They're on the phone, their kid's complaining, coach isn't letting me play, coach isn't doing this, coach isn't doing that, you know, help me, help me, help me. What is the parent's role here? Cool.
1: Again, I think depending on what the conflict is, again, there are times that I think parents have more every right to get involved, depending on what, what kind of issue. But I personally think with the regular kind of athletic playing division one or whatever division athletics that it's time for the parent to really allow their kid to work on conflict resolution on their own. It's a skill that you're going to absolutely need to be successful later. And at least again, I think they've had to go through all the channels, which would be going assistant coach, head coach, um, Athletic director that oversees the sport, um, and then you wouldn't really go beyond that, I think, unless it was something that that it would involve parents, which is maybe some laws are being broken or, or you know, mm-hmm. abuses or, or things like that. But. Um, I think it's, it's, a slippery slope, um, with parents. And I think as a head coach, what I got better at in the last few years is I sent out and I learned this from the Wisconsin volleyball coach. Um, you know, I kind of sent out a, a letter of expectation to the parents when, when kids were being recruited, this is what the expectation is going to be. We love having you come out. We love having you support, bringing brownies, whatever you want to do. Um, but it did change over the years, even my 11 years. I mean, because again, when my parents came to Georgia and they flew from New York, they came and watched and then they were like, if we don't see you again, we understand. Yeah. Um, I think parents today are a lot more interested in coming to the team dinners and things like that, which I had a tough time juggling that um, for various reasons. I think sometimes you want to have team meetings at that dinner. You want to talk about things and don't I personally didn't really want the parents like at the end of the table. Um that's a personal preference. I certainly was not um, the most popular coach sometimes with parents because of decisions like that. But um, I I don't know. I feel like, you know, I have a lot of, of course, all my families outside of the U S except for my brother and my parents. And so having these conversations with my family in Norway or, or England, they're, they're blown away by the parental involvement. Like when I talk to them, I'm like, Oh, this parent called and they threatened, they're flying in and they're like, what? They're like, aren't they 19 years old? And I'm like, Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a little, and that's why I think a lot of coaches will say sometimes international kids can be a little bit easier to deal with. You don't generally have mom and dad flying in from Europe because the kid's not in the lineup, you know,
0: so, but, but to be fair, There are issues that do warrant parent involvement. This specific issue that we're talking about at this moment, which is, you know, I'm not getting enough playing time or I'm not playing high enough and I'm not happy about that. um, That would not be an issue that would warrant parent involvement. The parent involvement in that case would be having conversations with your child and helping them role play. Um, and talk about, you know, what, let's, let's talk about what words are going to be effective here and what questions are going to work and, you know, what are your goals? Let's be very clear on what you're trying to gain from having this confrontation with your coach. Um, you know, pretend like I'm your coach, talk to me, then let me give you some feedback about how I would respond to that as your coach and how that would make me feel about you, right? That's the role of the parent in that type of situation. So it's not that the parent needs to be uninvolved. It's that the parent needs to not be calling the coach in, in that particular situation.
1: Yeah, no, I, I absolutely. I think the parent plays a really important role. And I think that role, which we joked about earlier it, with my parents too, was like, oh, thank God you're someone else's problem now. Like, yeah. their role is to be my parent, which was hard to do when we were competing as juniors because they're paying the bills, they're driving, they're spending the hours in the car, they're, you know. And so, any normal parent is going to have a tough time separating the two. It's, uh, the, the few that make it with parents like that, it's incredible what they're able to do. So it's really a great opportunity for both sides, for the parent to now step back and really enjoy the competition and and, and not have to deal with all the in and out problems of, of the day to day, but hundred um, percent. And that's part of what my business is about is like, I might be talking to a parent about how to help their kid as opposed to you know so I don't just do college placement but it might be okay they might call me and say hey like my kids calling me every day crying because this this, and this and and again I think often you know it, it's it's kid if you sat down or if you talk if, if you have the kid talk to the coach there are usually unless the coach is just a jerk which happens sometimes good reasons and that, that okay well do you remember like the last three weeks you didn't show up with your jump rope and like you know Those are the things that are going to add up. And if you're equal in every other way, no different than going for a job interview and you're dressed sharp and the other person's not, but everything else is equal. You're likely to not get that job because the other person was dressed more appropriately. Like that's the way the world works. So it, it might not be, Oh, your forehand's no good. Or you're, you're not, you know, it could be nothing to do with on court stuff or your, maybe your behavior, you're chucking your racket in practice every day. And, you know, um, and, you know you gotta own it a little bit, and I think sometimes if the parents get involved right away you're not you're not even getting the chance to own it, which is an important skill to be able to say it you know what and you know the kids that I've had success with every single one literally is like, "Oh my god, like I was a nightmare and like thank <laughs> you for not like putting you know like yeah." And those stories are so funny now. And those, all those kids I do talk to all the time, you yeah. know? And, and I think we talked about this. Two of my favorite kids I coached in 11 years were it's like three and 16 at six, they were not killing it. Right. Like they, no one try harder, you know? And, and as a coach, unless again, you're just a complete jerk. You can't not love that kid.
0: I don't right. care if they're
1: winning. How can you not love a kid that's running through the fence to try to get a ball back?
0: Like yeah. you got to appreciate that, right? Of course. Let's look at another situation. Let's look at a situation where a player is having an issue with another player on the team. What is the best way to handle that type of situation?
1: Again, I think it a little bit depends on what the issue, but most often I would say, again, it would be similar to what I'm saying with a coach is like to, to confront them again, how you confront them. I, mean, I think an important thing that, that, that I learned over the years was, you know, doing personality tests, right? So my personality, if you come at me, it's like, I'm like, I react, right? I've worked Mm -hmm. on it many years, but I think it's still in there a little bit. And so that's not the best way to resolve a problem. Like I need, even with coaching, since I was a kid, I needed a coach that like tricked me into thinking like, they, they weren't making me run, but they tricked me into making me run. You know, I don't know. Yeah. Like, you know that's what a good coach figures out, and, and how how to motivate. Mm-hmm. And different kids need different types of motivation. So I, I think, like I had an I have an example I remember from from my eleven years where, you know, my one and two were really competitive. But my one was outwardly competitive. like There was no question. My number two was sort of that quiet competitive. But whenever they played practice sets and things, they played a lot because they were quite a bit better than the the rest of the team. They needed to play each other a lot. Um, Plus, small team, you end up playing each other all the time. She struggled a lot competing because the other player was so outwardly competitive and it got under her skin. Mm So I spent a lot of time on the – in the office or on the phone with her helping her I'm like you, you need to confront it like and say look like I really admire your competitiveness and I think you're such a big part of why this team is having more success but is there a way we can find is there common ground we can find when we compete that will also allow me to bring out my you know my best in mm-hmm. the, the day if I'm winning and you're winning we're pretty close to winning those matches and you know it, again it's so much how you communicate, which guaranteed when I was in school, there's no way that was how I was having a conversation. Yeah. (laughs) yeah. But but my team too, I think we were a little bit more like the stereotype, like guys, we could like rip each other and then walk off the court and have lunch and be Mm -hmm. like, but, um, that's not that common. Um, and it, it wasn't always like that. Uh, my mom's like, "Oh, I remember some," and I'm like, "Oh, really? I feel like that." <laughs> we just like, "Oh, maybe not." But um, you know, I think conflict resolution skills. I mean, that might be something that would be a great thing to add into the, the curriculum for a program. Is okay. This is how we're going to handle conflict, and 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 that way you have like a, a roadmap a little bit, and it's expected. Because right. um, I feel like. My, my teams that had the most success, I didn't even know about the problem. They, they just to, handled it. They handled it, mm-hmm. you know, and I, and I found out later, I'm like, Oh my, I had no idea, but they like took ownership and they were like, we're going to, and, and you know, I was, and that's the team that had, a ton, you're going to have a lot more success when that's how you deal with things as opposed to one kid comes to me. I had a kid come in my early years and say, so-and-so was out last night and got so drunk and threw up everywhere. And I was like, you got to get out of here. Like, granted, if we have an alcohol problem, like where someone's going out and that's, we need to deal with that in a different way, but it is college. It's your first few weeks. This kid definitely made some bad decisions, but this wasn't a pattern at least at the moment. So I said, you don't come rat on your teammate. Like that's not going to bode well for a team cohesiveness. Now, again, if there's a legit problem, obviously we, that's a different conversation. So it was kind of funny. Cause this girl, another one that I'm still very good friends with, um, we joke about it now and she's like, and she just was trying to like get in good with me. Right. 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 Um, and and I'm like, that's not how it's going to work here.
0: You know? Yeah. All right. Let's look at another situation. Let's look at a situation where a coach is playing favorites on a team and playing favorites, so much that the other or some of the other members of the team are feeling um, borderline abused um, you know where they're they're not being treated fairly in terms of opportunities for private practices or lessons with the coach um, they're not being treated the same when they're on the road um, you know maybe this this favored player is, is getting to meet boosters and the rest of the team isn't or whatever the case may be you know we know lots of situations like that that have come up over the years unfortunately what happens then what do the players or player or players who are feeling slighted what's their course of action there Oof,
1: that's a tough one. And I've been on both sides of this as a coach, and you know, and 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 I've been in meetings about this as a coach. Um, it is super difficult because I guess it depends on how you define favorites. Um, like I said, two kids that barely won for me are were two of my favorites, right? Like, and that was based on just their effort level and their attitude, not not winning. So I think if it's based on like that word's a tough one because if it's based on kids that win and don't win that that's completely a problem. Like, mm-hmm. if, because if I'm doing everything I can to win and I'm losing, you recruited me most of the time. Maybe I was a diff, came from a different coach, whatever. But at the end of the day, I'm on your team um, and I'm doing everything I can and not winning. And, and then I, you're not one of my favorites because you're not winning that. That's a big problem. If that's, this is a loaded question. So I think it's really tough because if you look at like a football team, your third string quarterback's not getting the same attention from the head quarterback coaches as the the head lead quarterback, whatever you call them, right? Just there's only 20 hours in a week. So if you have carried 10 players and you can do 20 hours a week um, and um, you're doing privates and individuals and, you know, you hope you have a great assistant coach that can coach as well at a high level, but are you going to spend the same time all the time on kids that you know, aren't in the lineup walk on that, you know, it's like it's really difficult with the limitations on coaching staff to player. Um, I, so I think, I guess the first question I would ask any players with that issue is like, what do you feel like you're not getting that my favorite players are getting? And number one, let's see if we can talk through it. So maybe it's individuals. And if that's the case, I think when I've had things like that come up, I've, I've tried to, to move it around a little bit. Um, but it's super hard because again, in tennis, you have all six matches going at the same time, right? right. The reality is as a coach, you do have certain players that your coaching works better with. And my assistant is way better with that kid. And, and sometimes it's, Random or sometimes, you know, the kids with more of my mentality, which again, if I could go back in time and, and, and get a little better at this, I, I would. Um, but it's like, well, this kid's not buying into my my what I think should be happening out here, you know. And so if I'm on the, the top courts, does that mean they're my favorite? I, I, I mean, I'm going to go in the courts. I think I can impact the most. Mm-hmm. And over the year, it's going to generally be a lot of the same kids because you're going to figure out through the, through the practices and things, okay, well, these kids definitely love how my assistant's handling them. And awesome. You know, and, and but at the end of the day, there's two of us and there's six courts going. And and I said, don't think of it all the time as favorite. Like my goal as a coach, which I try to share with the teams all the time early on is freshman year, sophomore year, I'm going to be dealing with you a lot. Hopefully by your senior year, I'm not like, you're on your own. Like, you've got other problems to deal with. Like you should already (laughs) know how to play and like handle yourself, you know? And that's ideally the kind of culture I think a good team has is that number one player is not mad at me because I'm not on their court. It's actually, it's, it's, it's actually a, um, what do you call it? Like, it's a compliment kind of an honor. Yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. That's but, let's, one. but let's take this one step further, Tina. Let's let's take it to a place where not only is this kid not the coach's favorite, but the coach is actually saying things and 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 making the player feel bad. So things like I mean, we've heard of situations where coaches will say, you know, you've put on too much weight, you're, you're too fat, you know, you, you need to run more. Um, Why are you eating that? You know, those kinds of issues. What's the protocol? What is the player to do? What are the parents to do in a situation like that, that, that can, and often does call real cause real emotional upset and even long-term emotional damage. Yeah.
1: I mean, I'm blown away sometimes when I hear about coaches talking about players' weights. But it happens. It happens like
0: I'm amazed. Not just to females. It happens to men too.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's so off off limits in my world of eleven years. I mean, if there's anything like that going on, I mean that's a conversation I often have with a strength coach. Like how can we implement things that are going to, cause again, if you have eight kids lifting exactly the same, my body type and your body type aren't the same. The way I'm going to react is not necessarily the way you're going to react. So you're getting all these great results and I'm not, and what's going on. Um, And so that's comes into play is like, how can we individualize things a little bit or, I, you know, at some of the bigger schools as that we had more resources. So a nutritionist, like, you know, the first question would be like, how are you sleeping? Are you getting enough sleep? Like, because, you know, that was an issue at a lot of schools. Like these kids would stay up till so three in the morning studying and they have a match in the morning. And I'm like, it's a tough one because obviously we, we you know, I was fortunate. I think everywhere I was, my kids were top one or two every semester GPA, but it's like, where do you draw the line? Like that you can't study past midnight when we have a match 8am or 9am. And so and how do you really monitor that?
0: But uh, I'm talking more about not a coach like you, but a coach not like you, who who is employing these types of tactics to shame a player into making changes or shame a player into quitting the team, which we've heard those stories too. Mm-hmm. what are the proper channels for that player to then go through? You have to go to the coach's boss.
1: So the athletic director for that sport. Um, yeah. And do what? And, and, and tell them what's going on. And, and again, I think in, in a good system, then you have to be willing to sit with the coach and that boss and say, okay, well, on Thursday, you told me I couldn't, run fast because I'm fat, like, or whatever, you know? Yeah, know, that's not funny, but like, it's crazy that that would happen. I know it does. Yeah. Um, but it surprises me just because I feel like in my 11 years, how much things had changed and how careful it was made very clear, how careful we needed to be about our language around, especially things like that. And especially on women's teams, not to say, like you said, it doesn't happen on men's teams. So that just blows me away. But yeah, I know plenty of stories that I was like, if I even like whispered that I'd be like on the streets, you know, begging for food, I would lose my job. Like that's how I felt. Right. So I think you, you, you have to go to the person above the coach and, and say, look, like I'm, I didn't go to the coach because clearly this isn't a topic that I felt comfortable sitting with him or her and discussing when, I mean, when, what, with the content of what this is. Um, and again, I, I do think with a good good supervisor, you need to then be willing to have a, a three way meeting and say, look, like this is what happened. And if you do need to, you might potentially need to pull players in because they're witnessing some of this, um, and, and to find out really again what what the truth is. Like because I think sometimes I had I've had kids in eleven years say I threatened their scholarship. I've never said to a kid, I'm going to take your scholarship if you don't. But that's how the perception, or that's how they perceived what I did or said. So often it's, 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 you know, again, a communication thing where, whoa, I would never like, I I was just saying like, you know, this is the expectation, you know, this is how we we expect, you know, this is a, scary one too, or the summer, like, of course, the division one, I think expect them to train over the summer. So they don't come back and haven't hit a ball in three months. And then they get injured two weeks in, because, you know, like, but you have to be really careful with that. language. Like, so I think that's where that third person becomes very important because it's going to clean up the truth a little bit as to what really happened. Now, again, if it's straight up, Hey, you're fat. And you're like, there's really not a whole lot to discuss other than that coach needs to really be held accountable and, I think for something like that, it needs to be pretty serious because mm-hmm. we all know, I mean, when I studied this 25 years ago, I think 60 percent of female athletes had an eating disorder in college. So, I mean, it's not a joke. It's certainly and, yeah. and something that's long lasting, potentially forever in your life. And, and at the end of the day, this is it's a sport like it's not
0: supposed mm-hmm. to create problems for you for the rest of your life. Right. I mean and and let's be clear, you know, you talked about bringing other players, team members in to the conversation with the coach, with the athletic director. Um, you know, there're going to be cases where team members are scared of repercussions, you know, against them personally, so they're not going to be willing to necessarily speak up. Um and maybe it's somebody that, you know, the the person, the player being filing the complaint, maybe let's say playing at line three or four, um, they want the team member that's number seven on the team to speak out against them. But number seven sees this maybe as an opportunity to get in the lineup. So, I mean, there's so much going Mm. on, you know, that we have to think about these things. Nobody wants to talk about it because it's ugly and it's gross and we don't want to think that people think this way, but they do. And, um, you know, again, this whole notion of where do the parents come in with stuff like this? Um, Obviously, again, you know, you're advising that the player go to the athletic director to say, hey, I'm having this issue. I need some help navigating through that. But it's not time to bring a parent in at that stage of the game. But let's say that the athletic director says, you know, Sorry, there's nothing I can do. That's between you and the coach. Um, then is it appropriate for a parent to get involved? I mean, no. you feel really helpless when your kid's on a campus and you're not there with them.
1: Yeah, no, I think so. And I mean, I think another avenue, too, is compliance, because that's a, a, a place you can hurt an athletic department honestly, like is if they're breaking compliance rules and and part of compliance rules is conversations like this, like that, that's not really compliant to, to to talk about weight in, 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 you know, specific. So, um, I think if you're running into issues, this kind of level or more, then you start talking about compliance. Well, like, you know, this is actually against NCAA rules. This is, you know, and, and, and it's helpful in that case, which a lot of tennis parents who are pretty educated have come to the table knowing is like read up on some of this stuff and, and know your rights a little bit. I mean, it's unfortunate because my gut is always like, gosh, like, I mean, athletic director should take care of this. This shouldn't go further than that. This should be if I'm an AD and, and you're the coach, I'm sitting you down and be like, if I hear one more complaint, you know, or I mean, again, depending on resources, have someone out at practices that's just sitting and listening and watching, and or or randomly showing up and and you know find out like what's going on in in, in when no one's around, um, right? Because right.
0: But again, the parents' role at the beginning of this is to have the conversations with their student athlete, role play with them offer some guidance, maybe read up on the NCAA rules, the compliance rules, look at the hierarchy at the particular school and understand kind of the chain of command and and guide your child of first you go here and if you don't get an answer that's acceptable, then you go to this person and then, you know, go up the food chain. Um, And then if nothing is working and your child is still experiencing that verbal I, 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 it's abuse. I mean, let's just call it abuse. It yeah. is abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, if your child is experiencing that verbal abuse and not getting help from anybody at the university after going up the food chain, then it's appropriate for the parents to get involved. How, what, what does the parent do at that point? Well, I think that the more important question is like, what, is the end result
1: you're looking for? Because if the situation's that bad, and if you've already gone to the AD and they're not, they're not probably getting rid of that coach. It seems like they're protecting. So, do you wanna fight and fight and fight to keep your kid on a team where it doesn't seem like that is changing, which is a really difficult thing? Because you feel like, why the hell should my kid have to leave a school that they love? everything else about it Mm -hmm. but that's the reality and and the only good news behind that is there's tons of great schools where you're gonna have a great experience so it's not like oh my gosh now I'm I'm gonna have the worst life ever um you know because I'm not staying here um you know it feels like that in the
0: moment I will say oh
1: I'm sure I mean and my teammate who who transferred senior year that's a big year to transfer with one year left but I know that she looks back and so happy she did um because she had a great experience where she got to play a ton and she was part of building UNC Chapel Hill. Like that was right before they became the powerhouse that they are. So she's sort of like that footprint. Um, So, yeah, I think you have to at that point start looking at, you know, again, look, we can talk about this in the corporate world. We can talk about like there are just places that are toxic and you're not going to shut the business down. It's just, you know, um, you, all you can do is, is tell your truth and, and hopefully hope over time, again, if it's systemic and you have another play the following year, that's, you know, that at some point they are forced to do something about it, but the odds of it happening at the moment aren't very likely if you've already gone through all these channels and the whole lot hasn't been done. Um, it, yeah. It, it's, it's unfortunately just part of, part of unfortunately some people's experience. And, and, you know, the problem is, I think is you, you're going to have players usually, I mean, although I've seen some crazy teams, but that say the coach is amazing. And like they, they, you know, you you don't generally have the hundred percent team saying that the coach, you're going to have some kids say, that's totally not true. We've read these stories in in the New York times about different basketball programs and whatever that um, you have other kids coming to bat for the coach. So then it's like, The reality is, is you want to get your kid out of that toxic environment. If that's the environment that they feel like they're in, you know, Um, I mean, I've players that played a girl in particular who's on tour now, played on a team division one, that won national titles. I was shocked when she called me, she wanted some mentoring help on the tour and she was talking about how much she hated the coach. Like, I was like, no way. Like I never would have guessed. And I know the coach and I'm like shocked because every indication I get is not that. So I was like, Well, you know, you never know
0: what's really going on. Right. Right. And I will say that, um, like you said, you know, if if the person if the student athlete is in a toxic environment and the university is not going to change that environment for that student athlete, the options are to leave the team and stay on campus as a non-student athlete, just a student, maybe mm-hmm. play club tennis, maybe get involved in some other sport or activity on campus if that's you know important, or to transfer. Yeah. Um, and both are options, both are good options. What's not a good option is to stay in a toxic environment yeah. because especially if college tennis is the end of the journey for you, right? You're not going on to play professional tennis. College tennis is it. Why on earth would you subject yourself to a situation that's making you unhappy and miserable and, you know, maybe going to have long lasting effects on you? Um, So I think it's really important. The parent's role in all of this is to act as a sounding board Mm -hmm. to act as an advice giver um, to, to do your homework as the parent and understand the procedures in place to understand the rules and laws in place and to guide your child and to help when they are struggling with a decision where you know they've gone through the proper channels nothing's changing making that final decision of what do i do do i stay suck it up. And, you know, if it's my senior year, maybe I'm just going to suck it up until I graduate. If it's my freshman sophomore year, do I really want to spend two or three more years dealing with this? Or, you know, maybe the coach is going to leave at the end of the season and just nobody's telling you that yet. So there it's a tough, a tough call, but again, the role of the parent is to support the child, not to do the work for the child, and and the university we all understand doesn't refer to them as children because in the university's mind they are adults and student athletes and we as parents have very little that we can do um, on behalf of our children once they are in college, so it's it's a tough one but. Tina, you've now kind of morphed into this role of, like you said, mentoring these players. Talk to us a little bit more about this transition coach for athletes business that you've started and specifically what you're offering to these players.
1: Yeah, So um, it was kind of grown out of my last few years of collegiate coaching that I felt like these kids are just not having a great experience. And I feel like I didn't know how to fix it. And and I think a lot of it was circled around stress, anxiety. Um, You know, again, we every day at Georgia, when I was there, wasn't perfect. But overall, I look back and like, Right away, I start smiling and laughing. And again, I'm thinking of the stories that had nothing to do with playing tennis, but like times we got in trouble or we showed up late and, and you know, like how did we distract the coach so that someone could sneak in the back door? Um, and I was like, wow, like I felt like these kids are going to leave here and not have any stories. And the stories, again, you don't go to college or at least you learn quickly to go win national titles and have conversations. Like we, I've never talked to my teammates about anything that we won. Ever when we get together, and you know, one of my teammates lives here in Denver, and, and you know, we're just talking about oops, froze there, uh, talking about um, you know, just stupid things at college stories, and yeah. and um, so I was like, how how can I potentially be helpful to this this clearly real issue? And of course, a lot of it we joke we t- we say all the time, thank God we didn't have cell phones in college and like Snapchat and like I. We'd all be in jail. No, we wouldn't be in jail. But <laughs> you know, <it> <laughs> my parents yeah. would not be so proud of all my decision making back in the day. So um, thankfully, there's no documentation of it. Um, so there's a lot more stress around, you know, keeping up with everyone and, and keeping appearances. You know, we all social so media. Many, so yeah. many studies on how you know people p- make their life look perfect, and we all know everyone's life is not perfect. And but when you look on their Facebook, they look like like. The, you know you strive, you want to be who they are. Um, so when I left college coaching, I, I just started doing it like nonchalantly just because I really enjoyed being able to help. And when I had a lot of feedback from student athletes I had over the 11 years, I didn't realize like like anything else like being a teacher, like you, you you find out that your third grade student like still talks about you like you're the teacher that changed their love for reading or whatever it might be and you're like, whoa, like I had no idea. And that the reward of that was really, you know, what makes you do what you do. Um, And I I, I guess I was at a point now where a lot of my kids had graduated and gotten jobs. And and again, they live all over the world. And I started reconnecting with some of them. And, 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 you know, my my friend, my friend, I call her now Bridget, who, oh, my gosh, nightmare. She was a nightmare in the beginning. (laughs) Like, fighting about everything with me, you know, and now she's, you know, she was working in New York and, and and she's so into the tennis development and like the research behind it and all the different stages. And like, she's so into it and so methodical. And now she lives in Italy because she wants a new experience. And, and you know, when, when we get together and chat, whether it's in person or, or not, which is, we do a little bit of both, it's it's super cool to see her journey and, and to feel like or not be told that I helped her on that journey or on that path. Cause there's a moment where she's like, I'm going home and she lived from, she's from South America came from very modest means, like would have probably not been doing a whole lot of stuff if she had gone back then. This was when she was sophomore in college. Um, and now to see like her transformation in every way. I mean, she was definitely not super into staying fit or cared too much. Like she was making bad decisions left and right. And now she's like, like a marathon runner. I'm like, who are you? (laughs) I don't want to get on a track with you anymore. So, um, you know, anyway, that's sort of where this idea came from. Like, well, maybe, you know, now that I'm out of it, because once when you're in it, you can claim whatever, but there's always going to be some idea that you have some bias toward one side or the other and, and the fact that I played collegiately and then coached and then did for a year work for a company helping play student athletes I felt like okay I feel like I have like the knowledge from all different sides and even playing competitive golf to preface I never turned pro but I did do Q school twice and I did play one LPGA but um I, I wouldn't walk around saying I played pro golf that's you know um but I gave it a good <laughs> Gave it a good shot. It's way Um,
0: better than I ever did.
1: My parents just said I was postponing reality. You know, that's two immigrant parents, like, what are you doing? Um, So um, I felt like, okay, um, my experiences, and again, I I think I've mentioned a few times, I don't look back and say, oh, I did everything right, and the kids that didn't like me or still don't like me were idiots. Like, I mean – there are a few I might think that and there, there, there's a few I wish I had made some decisions or had different conversations and have learned, you know, through trial and error, like, Oh man, like maybe if I had tried this, you know, and I don't think I had the skill set to deal with everything at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, unfortunately we, we get older and wiser and sometimes it's too late to, to go back and fix some of those things. But that being said, I feel like now I, I, I can be more helpful for people, even potentially speaking with a coach, like, Hey, Uh, You know, depending on the comfort level, obviously I would never reach out to a coach without the player knowing, but like, Hey, I, I've been talking to so-and-so and and I'm just trying to figure out what's going on because I know you well, or I've heard, you know, I've I've followed you for many years. And I I know that this typically doesn't sound like maybe there's just a lack of communication or, or this is what she feels or he feels and, and, I have a feeling this is a pretty fixable problem. So I just want to get your perspective, you know, because I think that happens often too. I've said, and I am maybe a little biased having coached for 11 years that sometimes they're not, coaches aren't given a fair chance to like, you know, you know, it goes straight or like I said, up to the parents or up to the AD. And you're like, whoa, I didn't even know we had an issue, you know, and you know, you are dealing with a lot of kids and sometimes you do lose track of who's what, like, even like academics, I, an example I could give is like, I didn't start practice every day and go, how's school going? Like, we had two hours to get out. And, and, you know, like, so once I had kids like, Oh, I don't think coach cares about school. I'm like, what do you, we had the highest GPA <laughs> in the school. Like, so I didn't really think that was something I needed to discuss. But to some kids, they felt like my not asking about it was me not caring about it, you know, and that's just a completely, where no one's right or wrong it's like oh my gosh i didn't even realize you wanted to be asked about so um those are the kind of things i think it uh, now that i'm out of it i can i can see from more perspectives and kind of hopefully you know get these problems solved before they get become huge problems and again there are going to be some that are way out of my wheelhouse that i'm like yeah not not my territory you know that need to be dealt with other ways but um I do think um, you know and it's it's fun it's fun to feel like okay you have a kid freshman year is having these issues and they finish and they they had the best experience and they're like I'm so glad I got through that rough patch and most people are going to have, rough patch you know I don't really know any four-year athletes that say every year with perfect and it's almost impossible because between coaching changes and and lineup changes and graduating kids and bringing new kids I always joke my first two years at Georgia was like my team I would take a bullet for and my last years I might have shot the bullet you know like the, the you know the, the dynamics had changed and, and players had left and come and, and different relationships so and, and as long as you are a you know, you have to be okay uh, going in knowing that, right? Like, um, And that's part of it, too, with players. Like,
0: you know, oh, well, you but I know. I think that's a big issue, Tina, because I think – tennis and and i can only speak to tennis because i don't know other sports like i know tennis Mm -hmm. we don't tell the truth all the time about what the expectation should be or what the experience is actually you know it's it's that social media issue again where we're only seeing the pretty parts out front Mm -hmm. we're not seeing the soft underbelly of conflict and distress and you know, days where you are sick or injured and having to navigate through that or days or weeks where you have a tough academic schedule. Maybe you have a bunch of exams or papers due and you still have to show up for your team and you still have to show up on match day, you know, with that same level of competitive spirit and drive. Mm -hmm. We don't talk about those things. And so I think we do a disservice to student athletes and to parents who have this expectation that college tennis is going to look a certain way. And when it doesn't look that way, they think it's a failure. And in reality, it's not a failure at all. It's part and parcel of the package. And we have to learn how to communicate better. We have to learn how to manage conflicts and resolve conflicts. And thank goodness there are people like you out there who can offer us kind of a reality check and um, and some guidance on how to maneuver through these things and that's why I really wanted to do this episode this week because we are starting to hear well not starting but it seems like right now we've got a lot of things in the news that aren't so positive about college tennis and I don't want college tennis to die I I want it to thrive and and grow from all of these things that are coming out right now. Coaches have things to learn. Players have things to learn. Parents have things to learn. Recruiters have things to learn. Our governing bodies have things to learn. And we need to use this opportunity to do better and get better as a sport and as a collegiate sport so that we are still here in 10 years, 20 years, 50 years. Um, and so I, I really appreciate you coming on and, and being so straightforward with us this week. Um, for those that, that are interested in getting more information on you or getting in contact with you, what's the best way to do that? And we will have that in the show notes as well.
1: Yeah. So uh, my web, my, my webpage is, t- transition coach for athletes. So it's with the number four, so you don't spell it out. Um, But I'm sure even if you just Google my name, it will come up. I have a Facebook page for it as well, but um, should be pretty easy to track down. My number's been the same since the first cell phone I ever had. I refuse to give up my New York cell. (laughs) (laughs) But the other quick thing I want to say as well is, um, you know, make sure you listen to what you're hearing when you're in the recruiting process, because so there are times, oftentimes you hear, oh, I, you heard something about this coach. If, there, if there's enough grumbling about it and that's good, it doesn't make them good or bad. It just might, like you hear this coach is not cool with missing practice and or injuries or whatever it might be. Because um, on the flip side, coaches, I guarantee you, any coach, coach, decent length like of time will say, we all made that mistake with the player. Like we heard this player is difficult, blah, 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 but their UTR is really high. And I'm like, ah. Oh. We'll we'll fix her, you know, no problem. Yeah. That boom, blows up the team, and it's a nightmare. So I think just like you hire a junior coach, like I worked with Tony Palavox, who coached McEnroe, who for me was awesome because like I threw my racket, and then he threw his racket, and then we just stood there with no rackets. Like that is not what every coach would do to handle a player like me. They would make me run, or they that wouldn't have worked. He wasn't the best coach for a player that needed someone to get on them and and yell at them and blah, blah, blah. Some people need a little more of that. So mm-hmm. just the same way, every college coach isn't going to be perfect for every player. And, you know, it just, you might not fit in that system. Some coaches, I when I'm helping them with, with the placement, are looking for players that hit the ball 500 miles an hour, two inches over the net every shot. You know, you're not going to fit in that, in that program. You know, that's mm-hmm. not what they, they gravitate towards for right or wrong. That's just the way that coach likes to see things. So I think don't, close your ears to all the things you hear. Cause I think you hear a lot more than you sometimes are willing to admit. or you block it out? Cause you really like the school or you like sometimes even the colors,
0: like, you know?
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> no, it's true. Yeah. yeah. Well, Tina, thank you again. Really appreciate your time. And um, I want to urge all of you listening or watching to check out the show notes for links to Tina's website and how to contact her. Um, that will be again on ParentingAces.com. And to all of you tuning in, thank you so much. We will catch you next time on Parenting Aces. Thanks. I'm Lisa Stone, and you've been listening to the Parenting Aces podcast. For tennis parents, by a tennis parent. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to us and write a review on iTunes. For more information on navigating the junior and college tennis journey, please visit us online at ParentingAces.com. Thanks for tuning in and sharing us with your tennis community. (音楽) Kr др